Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is John 14, 8 through 10, and 19 through 21, and Galatians 2, 20. Paul writes, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does this work. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, because I live in you, and you also will live. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me, and those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. And then Paul writes in Galatians, It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Please pray with me. Lord, we are here. We are here in this place. We are here at this time. We are here in these bodies. And Lord, you are here. You are here in spirit. You are here in truth. You are here in us. Keep us aware, God, now and always that you are here. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this coming Wednesday, as we've said, is the start of Lent, which means that today is the final Sunday in our sermon series on what Jesus believed. Clearly, we have not exhausted the entire list of everything that Jesus believed. Uh, but we have taken a look at some of the major themes of his life and his teaching over these past few weeks. And the reason that we've done this, as we've said before, is that most people have things that they believe one way or another about Jesus. And there are many people that believe in Jesus, but far fewer who choose to believe like Jesus. And as his disciples, this should be our aim and our goal, right? To think as he thought and to feel as he felt and to live as he lived. And to do that, we need to know what it was that guided his life and his ministry. So we've talked thus far in this series about how Jesus came to announce the arrival of the kingdom of God and to reveal to us our truest and deepest identity as God's beloved ch children. And we've talked about how Jesus believed that trusting God is far more important than holding on to our sense of security in ourselves or in the world, and that the path to that trust is in dying to ourselves, taking up our crosses, and following him. And he said that 
when we do so, will be transformed from the inside out into the character and the likeness of Christ. And last week, we talked about how this invitation to God's kingdom is open to all people. Everyone is welcome to know God and to be in relationship with him. But how do we know him? I mean, really know him. That's our question for today. Because it's one thing to know about God. Plenty of people know or think they know about God, right? But it's another thing to really know God personally and to love him and to experience in him who we truly are. It's an intimate, personal kind of knowing in the way that you would know a parent or a friend. I think even as Christians, it's possible to go our whole lives only knowing about God without really knowing him personally. But what does it look like to know God or to see God? This was Philip's question in our text. He says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. There's a theologian that calls this the universal desire of mankind. Let us see God. And Jesus just says to him, Philip, here I am. Don't you know? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus believed that to know him was to know God, and to experience him was to experience God. And of all of Jesus' claims during his ministry, this one was probably the most shocking. This one essentially is the one that got him killed. This claim that he and the Father were one. Because it sounded outrageous to the religious leaders in Jesus' day, who knew that there was one God and one God only. And to many people today, all over the world, this still doesn't make sense. (laughs) How could it possibly be true that someone who has seen Jesus has seen the Father? What did he mean when he said things like, I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or I and the Father are one? This is what we're going to look at today because it's key to understanding who Jesus is and what he believed about himself and his relationship with God. And by extension, our relationship with God through him. So he says to Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And the first thing we have to understand is that the Father he's talking about here is the God that the Jews called the Lord Almighty, the Creator God, the one and only who revealed himself to Moses as Yahweh, I am. And he walked with the Jews all throughout their history. And they knew that their neighbors were uh, pantheistic. They worshipped multiple gods at the same time. But the Jews were monotheistic, meaning they believed in only one God. One of the most important Jewish creeds comes from Deuteronomy, and it's called the Shema. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And through Moses and the prophets, God repeatedly told them, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And over and over throughout the scriptures and the Psalms, the Jews kept proclaiming, you alone are God. This was built into their very selves. And so now Jesus, who is this law-abiding Jew and who knew these scriptures very well, is making the claim that he and God 
are one and the same. So we can see why this caused a bit of an issue. Right? Even for Jesus' disciples, it didn't quite make sense, or Philip wouldn't have made this request in the first place. It was something with, that the early church wrestled with for a long time. You know, how is it that Jesus, who affirmed that God is one, also considered himself one with God, and then said that he would be present in and through his disciples even after he left the earth through the spirit of this one God? It's all very confusing. It doesn't really make sense. But if Jesus is who he says he is, then there must be some sort of explanation, right? So what the early church leaders settled on was this language of Trinity, that God exists as three persons in one essence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why the different sections of our Apostles' Creed that we recite when we take communion They begin with the statements, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son. And I believe in the Holy Spirit. Because after plenty of debate about what Jesus could have possibly meant and who God is, this was the only way to understand and acknowledge this mystery of what God revealed in Jesus, who he said he was, that somehow the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not exactly the same, And yet, somehow, there is an indivisibility between all three of them. I mean, to be perfectly honest, it still does not make a lot of logical sense. (laughs) I remember people trying to explain this concept of Trinity to me as a child, right? They said, well, it's kind of like a clover. There's three leaves in one leaf, right? Or someone else said, it's like an egg, because you have the shell and the white and the yolk, and all together, they make up the egg. And someone else said, the Trinity is kind of like water, right? It's the same substance, and it can exist as a solid, a liquid, and a gas. Have you guys heard any of these before? Yeah, we try our best, right? <laughs> these metaphors are fine, and I mean, they're, they're decent, but they still don't quite fully grasp this odd concept. And I'm not sure that anything really can. It's a mystery. It's beyond our understanding. That being said, there's one other image for what the Trinity is like that I've discovered as an adult and that I really have come to love. And it comes from three early church theologians that are called the Cappadocian Fathers. And their term for the nature of the Trinity was this Greek term that is perichoresis. I don't know if you've ever heard of this before. Perichoresis is a combination of two Greek terms. So peri means around, and koren means to give away or to make room. To give way, sorry, not away. To give way or to make room. So together, perichoresis is a mutual indwelling, going round or giving way to one another. And the picture that's most often used to describe this is as a dance this eternal and inseparable dance where all three of the members of the Trinity are moving perfectly as one together, unable to exist without the other, but creating something beautiful between them. There's a unity there. 
And some say that this perfect, harmonious relationship, this eternal dance that exists in God is the origin of love. This is why we can claim, as scripture does, that God is love, because love is born out of this relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's really beautiful if you think about it. And this is what Jesus means when he says, I and the Father are one in John chapter 10. Theirs is this relationship of perfect love that has existed for eternity, so intimate that in essence there is no separation between them. It has always existed. So, when we experience the person of Jesus, we are experiencing God himself. If we want to see God and to know what he is like, we look at Jesus. I'm still not sure it all fully makes sense. Uh, That's why we sometimes call the Trinity a paradox. (laughs) It's not a contradiction, but it kind of seems like one, right? Because mathematically, we know that three does not equal one. It just doesn't. Uh, So, I don't know what to make of that, but really, there's no better way to account for what Jesus said about himself in this relationship that he described in having with his Father. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And just as mysteriously, he promises Philip that he can share in that relationship with God. He says, on that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And this is the same understanding and the experience that Paul had later when he wrote, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's another mystery. But this is why this matters for you and me, that we understand what Jesus was talking about, because we are invited to participate in this relationship of perfect love. Our lives are now hidden in Christ, as Paul says. And again, when I was younger, I often heard this language of inviting Jesus into your heart, right? I didn't really understand it at the time, but I knew that this is what you were supposed to do if you wanted to follow Jesus. You could say a prayer, and Jesus would come and live inside you, like a ballerina in a music box. And now, sometimes I tend to think that this phrase, invite Jesus into your heart, has been a little bit overused and made into like a get-into-heaven-free card but the sentiment itself is still fairly biblical. Christ has offered to come live in us through his Holy Spirit. There's a man named Thomas Merton who was a Catholic monk and who had a regular practice of contemplation and communing with God. He's one of my favorite spiritual teachers, and he described this relationship between us and God as a mystical union in which Christ himself becomes the source and principle of divine life in me. Christ himself, to use a metaphor based in scripture, breathes in me divinely in giving me his spirit. Think about that. The breath of God living in you, connecting you to God, making you an entirely new being, inviting you into this dance. It's pretty incredible. And this relationship is not just one way either. Jesus also invites us to live in God. You in me and I in you. 
This doesn't mean that we are God, that we become God, but it does mean that as created humans, we get to experience the fullness of God's love in Christ. And again, it's a concept that's kind of hard to get our heads around. And so the best way that I know how to describe this is just to share a personal experience that I've had. Um, I remember it was in the spring of 2018 when Matt and I were living in Seattle. Um, and I was nannying full time as I was going to grad school and was just in this season where I had spread myself way too thin. Um, I had set a goal for myself to finish my degree by a certain period of time, but in order to accomplish that, I was kind of burning the candle at both ends, right? Just working and not getting enough sleep, trying to do coursework, feeling a bunch of anxiety. <laughs> and I was feeling pretty shot. And it just so happened that in my preaching class, I was supposed to preach on Psalm 46, which is the psalm that has the phrase, be still and know that I am God. <laughs> yeah, you can see where this is going, right? <laughs> so one morning in the midst of all of this stress, I just stopped what I was doing and I figured I probably should practice what I preached. And so I sat down at the breakfast nook in this house where I nannied after I had gotten all the kids off to school. And I just sat and tried to be still. You know, and as it happens when you do this, all these thoughts came just rushing into my head and were circling and mulling. And still, I just tried to sit and let them go and be still. And I remember thinking, God, here I am. And then something happened. <laughs> and to this day, I still don't quite know how to describe it. I mean, out of body, maybe, or mystical, like Thomas Merton says. But I remember I texted Matt about it immediately afterward with tears just streaming down my face. And I, I wrote this in my journal later so I would remember it, but this is what I, how I described this to him. I said, I just, I had a crazy experience with God. I just stopped what I was doing and sat. I had this sense that I needed to just listen. And then all of a sudden, there was God. And I don't even remember how it started, but I was caught up as though I was spinning, just sitting here with my eyes closed. And it was like we were dancing, and I was being wrapped in joy. And God was there as father and mother and just said, hey, I love you. Let's dance and find joy, shall we? Because this is all I've ever wanted for you. And soon after, I asked for peace and wisdom about the whole of my life, and God said, don't be what the world wants you to be. Be someone who knows how to take your time. Do what you love, and do it slowly. Your life already goes by so fast as it is, and I want to spend as much of it as I can with you. And I cried. <laughs> And I said, this morning I prayed and asked for daily bread, and I feel like I just got the whole bakery. <laughs> and that was five years ago, but it, it still gets me. <laughs> you know, 
know, it's one of the most profound experiences I have ever had with God. I still don't know exactly how to describe it or what to make with it or what to make of it, but he was so real and so present. And I just needed to slow down long enough to notice. And I've prayed plenty of times since then. And sometimes that nearness of God still just hits me in the face like a ton of bricks. But most of the time, it's quiet. I don't always hear a response. Sometimes God feels absent. More than not, I'm just left with this sense of inexplicable peace in the midst of whatever's going on, even if the circumstances don't change. He's there. Now, Jesus is obviously no longer walking around with us. We can't just approach him like Philip did and look him in the eye and ask him our questions. But we do still experience him through his spirit. The spirit is called our helper and our advocate, the one who is nearer than our very breath, who makes our communion with Christ possible. It's the spirit's job, Jesus said, to teach us and remind us of all the things that Jesus said and did. And so with this in mind, there's one uh, devotional practice that I'd like to suggest for all of us as we go into our week and into this season of Lent and as we try to open ourselves up to knowing God and really experiencing him. Um, It's called Lectio Divina, which uh, means divine reading. And it's a way to experience God as we read scripture we read the word of God and it's been practiced by Christians in the monastic tradition for years and years and only takes a few minutes out of your day and here's how it works in the first service I sort of just explained this but I actually kind of want us to do it together if that's okay with everyone Um, so you find a passage in scripture and I would suggest maybe either a short text from the Gospels or one of the Psalms. Um, I'm going to read out of Psalm 25, which is what we just used in our affirmation of faith. And we're going to invite God's Spirit to be with us here as we read this. And in Lectio Divina, you read through this scripture three times. And so the first time through, you read the passage slowly, which I'm going to do for all of us. And we listen for something that seems to stick out, a phrase or a word that speaks to you. What part of the passage catches your attention? So I'm going to read Psalm 25, verses 1 through 10. Feel free to close your eyes and take a deep breath if you like. But listen for something that speaks to you. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be put to shame. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Be mindful of your mercy, O Lord, and of your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. 
All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his decrees. So the second time, as we read this passage through, pay attention to that word or phrase that came to mind and ask God, what is it that he's trying to say to you in that? Why did he draw this particular thing to your attention? Is there something that he is trying to remind you or ask you or challenge you to do? I'm going to read it through one more time slowly. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be put to shame. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Be mindful of your mercy, O Lord, and of your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me, for your goodness' sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his decrees. I hope that God has a chance to say something to you in this passage because the Spirit is ever at work when we read Scripture. And the third time that you read a passage through, um, whether that's the whole text or just this part that you've been nudged by, this is the time to respond to God. How do you feel about that nudge? What do you want to say to God in return? Let it be a conversation with a friend that loves you. I'm going to read this through one last time. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be put to shame. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Be mindful of your mercy, O Lord, and of your steadfast love for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his decrees. It's a bit of a simple practice, but I find that it really invites me to encounter scripture in a new way and to read it for what God has to say to me in that day. 
And the fourth step, if you choose, is then to just rest in that love of God and let that conversation linger with you throughout the day. Let it marinate a little bit. Some people choose to journal, if that's helpful, or just hold that phrase in your mind as a meditation throughout the day to keep you connected to God. This is a way of reading scripture that's not to study or to sort of check that devotional box in the morning, but really to let God be with you and to speak to you through his spirit and his word. To not just know about God, but to really know God. To say, as Paul said, that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This Christ who shows us who God really is. Jesus believed that to see him was to see the Father, and to experience him is to experience the love of God. And he wants nothing more than to pull you into that dance and to let you experience his joy. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we are so grateful to be in your presence to be invited to know you, to know ourselves in you, to let you live through us, even though that is a mystery that we will never fully understand. You are so far beyond the limits of our understanding, and yet, in Christ, you've chosen to be known. You want us to be in relationship with you and to know what that love is that we were born out of. God, I just ask your blessing and your presence on everyone here this morning that we might carry that knowledge of you in us and us in you throughout our week and throughout this season as we prepare for the death of Christ for us so that we might have that perfect relationship with you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your son. And thank you for your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.